It is August 1954, and Earl Bray is thinking about a delicious snack of roasted sunchokes to help combat his killer case of the munchies. This is some kick-ass Oregon history. Welcome to another installment of Kick-Ass Oregon History, a survey created by the geeked-out history folks at orhistory.com. I'm your host, Andy Lindberg, and under the guidance of resident historian Doug Kent Crispin, we profile only the most badass, captivating Oregon stories. It's all Oregon sex, drugs, rock and roll, and earth-shattering, devastating destruction. Basically, the good stuff. Four twenty. Get on the interwebs, do some searching, and you will find a shit ton of explanations as to where the term 420 came from. Perhaps it's impossible to tell now, and the discussion is really down to splitting hairs, for the term is generally accepted in use as meaning, dude, let's smoke some marijuana. And users of the term often will smoke their cannabis at that specific time, 4.20 in the afternoon, or for the more ambitious, 4.20 in the morning. Now, April 20, besides being Hitler's birthday, is also known as a sort of informal international weed smoking day. Pot smokers from all around the world view that April day as a significant holiday and tend to smoke and smoke and smoke and smoke to their bloodshot eyes delight. So in a state that is known for its extremely high quality marijuana, we thought we might examine a little of the history of the criminalization of marijuana in the state of Oregon. But also because our state is known for its high-grade marijuana, we knew we would be remiss if we did not take you on an audio tour of Oregon's marijuana scene. And it is a curious subculture. Kind of legal, kind of illegal, our resident historian, Doug Kent Crispin, decided to do a little in-depth researching and stepped into this somewhat amorphous economic zone, this gray market, so to speak, and sought out stoners, dealers, and growers to ask them about the state of marijuana in the state of Oregon. And because at ORHistory.com we pride ourselves on giving you the straight shit, it was incumbent upon Doug to partake of the product. For research. Fortunately for you and I, ass kickers, he recorded it. So join us on this April 20th, dear ass kicker, as we bring you The History of Weed in the Beaver State. The smoker of marijuana is amused by everything and develops affectionate tendencies and thoroughly believes in the universal brotherhood of man. The Oregonian, 1925. Good old lady, shake that stick, top 
Many have said that history is written by the victorious. And in the war on weed in Oregon, much of our history of the topic is found in the chronicles of the pot busts that have been made in our state. Paul Welter and Jose Flores were arrested by state police in September of 1931 for growing about two tons of Indian hemp, or marijuana, which the Oregonian defined as a Mexican weed that is said to have a mild narcotic effect when smoked. Welter and Flores operated a one-and-one-half-acre plantation about a mile west of Goble, Oregon, on the lower Columbia River. The weed was described as being as tall as corn plants and well-cultivated. The Oregon State Police had not seen the plant growing before and had to take a sample to a Portland botanist for classification before executing the arrest. Surely harshing their mellows, the two farmers were taken to the Columbia County Jail in St. Helens. It was said that Welter and Flores were to earn $2 a pound for the grass, stripped and dried. The paper claimed that the weed would have retailed to Portlanders for $2.50 for a tobacco tin-sized packet, or $0.25 cents for a single cigarette. Mr. Welter only served 60 days of his sentence. As he told the jury, I didn't know it was marijuana. Uh, I thought it was only birdseed. And guess what? The jury believed him. An Albany man was fined $50 two years later for growing the weed, but again claimed ignorance as to the true identity of the plant. He said that he grew it for seed, to feed to his chickens. One, two, three, two, two, three, in contrast to the mildly narcotic roadside weed of Oregon's past, the marijuana grown today in Portland, for instance, is of very high quality. Mr. W., a connoisseur of marijuanas, offered resident historian Doug Kent Crispin some guidance and gave him the straight shit about strains. The strains are, you could think of as uh, just like tomatoes. There's hundreds of varieties of tomatoes, some that are big and red and round, some that are lumpy and purple and uh, have a different flavor, a different appearance. Cannabis tends to be the same way and have bright green buds or flowers, dark 
purple, and all sorts of different colors, depending on how they were grown, what their lineage is. The strains are so many and ever-changing that it's hard to pick just a favorite. There's been blueberry or ham, dervish strains that are all derivatives of other strains, and uh, it's more interesting to know the lineage of the plant, whether it's a sativa or an indica, whether it originates from South America or the Himalayas. The end product, when ingested as medicine, will be different. Euphoria to treat depression. Different strains will give you different effects depending on what's desired. My favorites tend to be sativa. They'll make you a little more talkative, a little more active, less lethargic, as is typically how marijuana smoking can be perceived. A current favorite is Silver Lining Lemon Diesel Haze, which is a hybrid of those two strains. It's lemony, tastes sort of citrus, and delivers a euphoria that I imagine is much akin to Prozac. <laughs> Mr. W. next explained the designer market that has evolved in Portland's weed culture. Yeah, there's a lot of love put into the weed grown domestically in the uh, 503. Just a lot of love. Yeah. Really a lot of love put into it. There's some amazing little gardens, and uh, there's, like you said, love and care, and it seems to me like there's people producing some really, really good-tasting weed, some very powerful weed, and stuff that's just just top shelf. That's true. And there's often a sort of sense that, oh, strange main, that doesn't really mean anything. But as it... Be I mean, I think there's almost... It's almost like a boutique quality to it. You know what I mean? It's almost kind of designer label weeds or what's coming out in Portland. That's what's already happened. As somebody says, gee, I've got low back pain and depression, and I'm always feeling wound up, they can go and order a specific strain to treat that condition. As people become familiar with the different attributes of different strains, the varying, the number of varying strains available seems to be growing, and so exactly as you stated, a boutique designer market. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. Meanwhile, back in 1932, officers in Klamath Falls, Oregon, had identified marijuana as a big part in Klamath County's general lawlessness. District Attorney Gillen Waters said that the greatest problem was in the dealer's underhanded dispensing to Indians, Mexicans, and young white people at public dances and pool halls. While technically legal in Oregon until the passing of the National Uniform State Narcotic Drug Act in 1935, users of marijuana were still likely to face associated charges, and dealers were often considered to be contributing to the delinquency of their cotton-mouthed customers. 
marijuana, the dried leaves and flowers of the Indian hempweed, is used in the form of a cigarette. Marijuana smoking, experts point out, can make a helpless addict of its victim within weeks, causing physical and moral ruin and death. Should you ever be confronted with the temptation of taking that first puff of a marijuana cigarette, don't do it. Mr. W discusses the manufacture of marijuana cigarettes. It's important not only to roll the joint, but preparation of the weed can be a large factor. If you want it to smoke smoothly like a uh, factory rolled cigarette is expected to, one might need to prepare the weed a little bit if you've bought buds tight or sticky. Um, I like to use a grinder, it's a spice grinder, but a hand-held spice grinder with two parts. You can hear it grinding in the background, perhaps. And with that, I've created a lightly pulverized uh, uh, cannabis that is a little easier to light, a little easier to continue burning, and uh, a more a steady burn. There's a little machine that has sort of a figure eight double rollers. Put the grass in there, add a paper with the gum side trailing and facing you. Spin it in like so at the last minute. And that is how you hand roll a cigarette without a machine. Wow, that looks uh, almost factory made. <laughs> well, Mr. W, let's smoke it. Let's smoke it right now. kind of fucked up making this podcast. 72-year-old Portlander Earl Bray had quite a surprise one August morning in 1954. After a tip from a neighbor who was always bitching about the brambles in Bray's backyard, Portland police raided the retiree's residence and confiscated what they referred to as, quote, a sizable crop of marijuana. But not so, said Mr. Bray. That old stuff there? What? That's what they call Jerusalem artichokes. I eat them. I even feed them to pigs. They're good eating. They're sweet tasting. But the Portland police did not agree with Mr. Bray's taxology and had samples sent off to the Federal Narcotics Bureau in Seattle. Marijuana, huh? That's what it is? <laughs> Shucks, I've seen it there at least ten years. Comes up every year by itself, and it'll be back up next year, too. At least three botanists, the Oregonian's garden reporter, and an agricultural consultant positively identified the weed as Helanthus tuberosus, or Jerusalem artichokes. Mr. Bray was exonerated. And we at Kick-Ass Oregon History hoped that he continued to enjoy his roasted sunchokes 
whenever he may have had the munchies. Again, our friend Mr. W. explains the use of the water pipe, or bong. So, Mr. W., um, tell me about this device in front of me. It looks to me like a bong. Well, sometimes called a bong, uh, technically a water pipe. It is a, uh, like a pipe. It's a, a herb or tobacco or hemp smoking device. Uh, but the smoke is filtered through water, which adds a, a level of filtration, particulate, and uh, bits of the smoke, uh, the heavy particles, are filtered out so that when it's smoked, um, maybe it causes less coughing or at least a cleaner delivery of the substance. So I have a water pipe here and some uh, smoking substance that I will put into what is referred to as the bowl. The bowl is the wide opening at the end of the stem. This will be an obvious piece sticking out of whatever device, usually blackened from having flame applied to it. Um, at the top of the device, there will be an opening where you put your mouth on and draw air through. That creates a suction at the stem's bowl. If you light the other end, obviously your smoking substance catches fire. One other important factor on some water pipes, especially older ones like I prefer, there's a hole down by the stem called a carb or carburetor. When you draw smoke through, you've left a lot of smoke in the smoking device, maybe even after it's gone. If you let your thumb off of this carb hole, it makes an easier airflow to draw the rest of that smoke out into your lungs. On February 1st, 1967, the grand guru of LSD, Timothy Leary, came to Portland and lectured to about 1,500 at the then-termed Portland State College, preaching his mantra of turn on, tune in, drop out to the assembled, Leary's presence seemed to have freaked the Portland establishment the fuck out. Leary had told the assembled Portlanders, Turn on and reach a new level of experience. Tune in and find the key within yourself. Express your discovery with acts of beauty. When the structure gets too much for you, drop out. When the picture becomes stale and time-worn, drop out. Once you drop out of this system, don't vote, don't demonstrate, don't politic, and don't get in that same old game. And once you turn on, you can't come back. Portland Police Deputy Chief Robert L. Steele was not fucking impressed.
one of our undercover vice officers attended the Dr. Timothy Leary lecture, and afterwards, a member of the audience asked him if he wanted to butt some sticks. Our bohemian types have come to feel that it's all right to use marijuana. For the first time in my memory, kids by the dozen are blowing this pot and popping pills. Well, years from now, when asked if they have a record of arrests, they will have to say they were once picked up on a narcotics charge. The wonder at your feet, your life's complete. Follow me down. Can't you see me? Chief Steele. And isn't that just the most pornorific police name you've heard in a long time? Laid out his plan, and he laid it out well. Just six days after the Leary lecture, his officers fanned out across the city and swooped down on the bohemian types. The newsmen penned, Most of the men wore tight checkered pants, sweatshirts, and wide belts. The girls had long hair and black stockings. Their pads, mostly run-down multiple-unit dwellings in southwest Portland, are filthy. The beds are just mattresses on the floor. These pads are dimly lit, and sometimes they have paper sacks over the light bulbs. Many of them have colored lights. 52 beatnik and pseudo-intellectual types, their average age being 19, were arrested that night, and over $20,000 worth of marijuana was seized. The weight associated with the weed was 8 kilos. At the time, the record amount of dope confiscated in the city of Portland. The single largest pot bust in Oregon history was in June of 2011, when police from over a dozen agencies, including the Oregon Army National Guard, busted an outdoor plantation in Wallowa County in northeastern Oregon. Six suspects were arrested, and the authorities destroyed over 91,000 pot plants that were being grown on public land. The police reported that the grow operation literally stretched for a mile within the canyon. As part of his exhaustive research for this episode, resident historian Doug Kent Crispin had an opportunity to take a tour of a much smaller grow operation, where pride and quality were certainly overriding principles in the production. This is uh, Doug from Kick-Ass Oregon History, and I am with Mr. X somewhere in the city of Portland. Thanks for having us over, Mr. X. 
Yeah, no problem. So I, what I was hoping you could do is just kind of explain to us kind of what we're seeing here that obviously the listeners of the podcast can't see. Uh, it's a room that has uh, probably about eight plants uh, in vegetation state, just uh, living healthy and, I don't know, looking pretty full and green. So do we have different stages of the plant here? Are they at different weeks, or is it all pretty much yeah. just uniform? Yeah, they're different weeks. Like these ones over here, um, you know, are just uh, coming up. They're in four-inch pots. They've only been here probably about you know, three or four weeks and getting a good root system built up. And once they get nice and hardy, I'll move them into this 15 gallon pot and um, let them take off from there. And then how long are they in the process total? Well, if you're a lot of people, you know, if you're doing it optimally, um, you know, it's about two months in the uh, in the bloom state and roughly about, you know, two months in the vegetation state. And so four months, I guess. So is this a, a medical marijuana operation then? Yeah, yeah. So then it is, it's, there's some sort of licensing or some sort of a certificate or something like that? Yeah, yeah, it's uh, from this, you know, the state of Oregon and um, it's for pain and uh, yeah. So then this is versus like some other operation where you might go in and see 150 plants or something like that. Oh yeah, this is very much just a small little, you know, one person deal and, you know, this isn't for any sort of mass consumption or anything like that. So, yeah, it's pretty mellow. So in under kind of ideal, optimal situation, what kind of a yield can people expect from one plant? Well, um, I've been getting probably about um, half to maybe, you know, the best one I've gotten is around a pound, you know, probably a little above a, a pound for one plant, but that isn't common for me. So I say, you know, about three quarters of a pound would probably be, half to three quarters would be what I get. And then how many plants are folks allowed to have when they have medicinal marijuana, kind of the okay from the state? Um, six per patient. And, uh, yeah, six per patient in flowering, and I believe it's 18 in the vegetative state. Mr. Y, who was along for the tour, commented on Mr. X's growing methods. I just think his growing method's a little unique. Mm -hmm. I mean, the sea green eyes pulling these down mm -hmm. and this. He does a really yeah. good job like, at that. Look, like, look see. at that plant. Yeah, that yeah. thing is freaking level huge. It is. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's huge. huge. Is this, I mean, what are we looking at? We're looking at one, dude, this is one that's just pot one. right here. Right, right, right. Okay. Yeah. And that yield, that's, I mean. That's one plant. Because yeah. if you look at, yeah, if you look yeah. at some so, other growers, they just grow that straight Yeah, yeah, yeah. Sure. and that's why I said it's different for me, because I hold mine back. Yeah. It doesn't necessarily, uh, it's not maybe the most efficient way to go, you know, in the sense of like, you know, you're just speeding them along, but I'm not doing it for the production. It's more like what works for my schedule. So essentially this plant, then this is one plant, but it looks like, it looks like kind of like a low sloping bush. Yeah. How do you achieve that effect rather than kind of like a, a tall central cola? I just keep pulling it down as it gets, as it gets, you know, bigger and healthier. I just pull it down at the tip so that it just keeps a nice. You pull the uh, branch essentially? Yeah, yeah. Push, pull the branch down and um, just keeps it in a nice, you know, do you secure e it or something like yeah, that? yeah. See these right here. I happen to use, you know, um, you know, I guess copper, you know, copper I, wire. Yeah, yeah. This is from like, you know, Romex or something like that. They're just scrap wire. So you just make a little loop or something. Yeah, and then just push it in the ground and uh, in the soil, and 
you know, just train it. And as it gets bigger, it just, you know, you just keep training. It gets fuller and fuller, and it takes a while. But um, so I figure... you a uniform level yeah, of vegetation. Yeah, and I figure, you know, it's like if I'm putting all this energy into it, you know, I only get, you know, six plants. So why not make the most of each plant rather than just have a, a quick turnaround type thing? Make each one, you know, be as big and full and healthy as I can. Well, thank you very much, Mr. X, for having us over now. Is this kind of like when I went to the France bakery as a kid? You know, you go on the tour and they leave and they give you a blazer card. Are you going to give me like a little bag of weed and a Damian Lillard card oh, as I head out? Sure, not a card, but yeah, I can definitely uh, leave you happy. We would like to thank Mr. X for contributing to the happiness of our resident historian. Until very recent events in Washington and Colorado, Oregon was seen as having some of the most progressive laws of decriminalization in the United States. In 1973, Oregon became the first state in the nation to decriminalize marijuana. Possession of an ounce or less of weed became a violation and not a crime, and the hippies fucking rejoiced. Far out, man. Yeah, it might be a bummer to essentially get a speeding ticket for having a bag of Mary Jane, but you sure as shit weren't going to find your ass in the Hooskow next to Carl Cletus Bowles for the infraction. Another historic move towards legalization came in 1998. With 54.6% of the vote, Oregon voters decided to pass Ballot Measure 67, which allowed possession, cultivation, and consumption of cannabis with a doctor's permission. After some modification in 2006, patients are now allowed to grow six mature plants, 18 immature seedlings, and to possess 24 ounces, or a pound and a half, of usable cannabis. But not everyone is excited about decriminalization. We had a chance to talk to a gentleman who makes his living selling marijuana. Let's call him your friendly neighborhood dope dealer. So you have an interesting perspective on the the medical marijuana initiative in Oregon. Kind of, kind of tell us what what's happened with that. Well, starting in the '90s, they started bringing in lots and lots of Canadian weed, and a whole lot of people started making a lot of money. And I mean six figures, and there's 22-year-old kids coming up like that. Real fast in a basically pretty friendly environment compared to hard drugs. And when the medical came on, it didn't really catch on that hard at first, but the Canadians started getting a little cheaper and a little scarcer, and, and then just finally it was phased out, and so nobody's really dealing with large amounts. People are growing it and going to dispensaries and a couple pounds here and there, maybe five, but there's no real money to be made anymore. The market is flooded. It's, uh, you gotta just like, Phone rings, they got 50 bucks, you gotta be like hustling across town, like, oh yeah, give me that $50. It's, uh, yeah, everybody knows, everybody knows five growers, and it's just ridiculous. So it's a lot harder then for you to make a living selling bags of weed. It really is, and I don't understand the people that want it to be totally legal or go to a dispensary, because they're projecting that it's going to be, when it's totally legal, $12 a gram. Uh, they pay 
around that in the dispensaries. And I'll sell it to them for cheaper. I'll front it till payday. I'll deliver it to your door. Support the cottage industry. It's kind of that customer service, that personal level. Of yeah, customer service. yeah. You know, it's like everything. Everybody, the same people want weed legal, or all this anti-corporate rhetoric coming out of their mouths. And at the same time, they're killing off the mom and pop. I'm fucking pop over here. You know, let it alone. It's good enough. We've been handling you guys for 40 fucking years or so. Your parents got their regular weed dealers. You know, just keep it illegal. Fuck the man. Don't Walmart weed. Don't Walmart weed. So keep it all local. Keep it in the in the cottage industry. The little guy has a chance. The more dispensaries there are, that like in L.A., you can't make it just trying to sell to people. Because they all just go to the dispensary. So how much money does it cost to open the dispensary? A lot more it costs to get your first ounce, break it up, and get out there and hustle. Entrepreneurship. Is being crushed by the corporate dream. And don't do it, hippies. Don't do it. <laughs> Fuck. <laughs> They're just misguided. It's, uh, you know, they... Idealistically, we should be able to smoke whatever we want. Yes, yes. But it's been that way for 80 years. Now it's the man's gonna get tax money. He's gonna take it to war. He's gonna do bad stuff with it. Don't trust the man. Don't give him no money. Keep it. We'll handle it. We got you covered. Keep it on the streets. Our friendly neighborhood dealer then discussed the nitty gritty of selling weed. Break it down for the economics. Just that smell is number one sell factor, folks. Number one sell factor is smell. What's number two? Number two is sight. What it looks like. And, and then third is potency. I mean, it all gets you high. I mean, people, it's really just about the aesthetics, you know. The, the aesthetics of the boutique weed. Yeah, exactly. And finally, the challenges he now faces with the threat of legalization. It was a beautiful thing. And let's, you know, it's like freedom is what they're thinking when they say legalize it. But now let's think about freedom of this untaxed, uh, income. Let's think about freedom of this whole underground economy that's thriving. Black market has always been there. Black market is one of the last bastions of freedom. I mean, let's just look at it, you know, just at least respect it. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, it's not like you're on a, you're going to have to be involved in some real, you know, Chad comes over in his Volkswagen bus, plays some hacky sack and drops off a bag. You're in the black market. Ooh, and nobody's in any danger of getting busted for just smoking it. Already, that's just out. The, there was that was gone a long time ago. If you're just smoking it, you got no. And but if you want to take the chance to take a little walk on the wild side and make some money back in the day, you could really, really, really do good if you if you were honest and didn't fuck people around and you just stayed in there. You could really come up. Fucking air. now. Bright young dope dealers are having to have jobs dishwashing and cooking and 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 stocking shelves at Walmart. These are, these are the flower of the youth. They could be the next generation. Awesome dope dealers. They got the spark in their eye. I, I see it. I'm a 24 year veteran, and I know when I see potential. And the brother has to work washing dishes too to supplement. It's a waste of talent. Man. Yeah, but even to even now, there is. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people, maybe upwards of 10,000 people in the Portland metro area that make a serious supplement to their income or their entire income is weed. You know how many uh, mortgages are getting paid in Portland because of weed? How many, uh, I mean, what is to say that this wouldn't place wouldn't look like Cleveland with that many boarded up houses? 
I mean, people are really getting by selling weed. Go for the total legal thing like they did in Washington, or it's gonna, if it gets all over the country, total legal. These people, I mean, shit, I can't fill out a job application, literally. You know, just kind of like picture it. It's like two years from now, the Oregon legislature has said, you know, we passed the bill, weed is legal in Oregon. What does that mean? What does it look like in the future to you? The future for me, and I want to stress for a lot of people, get that straight, a lot of people is very bleak. It affects the local economy a lot more than you think, and the way it's shaping up in Washington now is getting more and more, it's getting further away from the little guy to get in on the ground floor. That's what a lot of people had dreams of doing, and it's they hired this company to come to work with them, and it's just looking like it's gonna be, you gotta have big bucks to play. So, there we go, corporatizing. Cheating, Damn, we hurting, that's all you seem to do. As of the writing of this podcast, the Oregon legislature is looking at legalizing the weed in our state. And please note that this is not a ballot initiative. Our elected officials see legalization as an inevitability and appear to be attempting to get ahead of the game. They're likely operating from the perspective of revenue sources and being able to control and profit from that aspect of any legalization legislation. Let's hope that our representatives have the foresight to keep the moms and the pops in our state's rich marijuana heritage. In the now immortal words of our friendly neighborhood dope dealer, let's keep it local and let's not Walmart Oregon weed. Thank you for listening, Ass Kickers, and be on the lookout for future podcasts from ORHistory.com. We hope that you agree that this episode featured some kick-ass Oregon history. Today's podcast was written, recorded, edited, and produced by Doug Kank Crispin and Andy Lindbergh. Citations are available on request. Kick-ass Oregon history is on Twitter at Oregon underscore history. We're also on the Facebook. The email address is OregonHistorian at gmail.com. Want more kick-ass Oregon history in your life? Learn more at ORHistory.com. Just don't get too close to Mr. Kate Crispin. Those aren't sunchokes he's growing in his backyard. You stay historic, Oregon, and kick ass.
orhistory.com.